Section 1 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in September 2019. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. The Early Discoverers 1. To the people who lived four centuries ago in Europe, only a very small portion of the Earth's surface was known. Their geography was confined to the regions lying immediately around the Mediterranean and including Europe, the north of Africa, and the west of Asia. Round these there was a margin, obscurely and imperfectly described in the reports of merchants, but by far the greater part of the world was utterly unknown. Great realms of darkness stretched all beyond, and closely hemmed in the little circle of light. In these unknown lands our ancestors loved to picture everything that was strange and mysterious. They believed that the man who could penetrate far enough would find countries where inexhaustible riches were to be gathered without toil from fertile shores or marvellous valleys, and though wild tales were told of the dangers supposed to fill these regions, yet to the more daring and adventurous these only made the visions of boundless wealth and enchanting loveliness seem more fascinating. Thus, as the art of navigation improved and long voyages became possible, courageous seamen were tempted to venture out into the great unknown expanse. Columbus carried his trembling sailors over great tracts of unknown ocean and discovered the two continents of America. Vasco da Gama penetrated far to the south and rounded the Cape of Good Hope. Magellan, passing through the straits now called by his name, was the first to enter the Pacific Ocean, and so, in the case of a hundred others, courage and skill carried the hardy seamen over many seas and into many lands that had lain unknown for ages. Australia was the last part of the world to be thus visited and explored. In the year 1600, during the times of Shakespeare, the region to the south of the East Indies was still as little known as ever, the rude maps of those days had only a great blank where the islands of Australia should have been. Most people thought there was nothing but the ocean in that part of the world, and as the voyage was dangerous and very long, requiring several years for its completion, scarcely anyone cared to run the risk of exploring it. 2. The Kiros there was, however, an enthusiastic seaman who firmly believed that a great continent existed there and who longed to go in search of it. This was De Quiros, a Spaniard who had already sailed with a famous voyager and now desired to set out on an expedition of his own. He spent many years in beseeching the King of Spain to furnish him with ships and men so that he might seek this southern continent. King Philip for a long time paid little attention to his entreaties, but was at last overcome by his perseverance and told de Quiros that, though he himself had no money for such purposes, he would order the governor of Peru to provide the necessary vessels. 
the Quiros carried the king's instructions to Peru, and two ships were soon prepared and filled with suitable crews, the Capitana and the Almiranta, with a smaller vessel called the Zabra to act as tender. A nobleman named Torres was appointed second in command, and they set sail from Peru on a prosperous voyage across the Pacific, discovering many small islands on their way, and seeing for the first time the coral islands of the South Seas. At length, 1606, they reached a shore which stretched as far as they could see, both north and south, and the Quiros thought he had discovered the great southern continent. He called the place Terra Australis del Espiritu Santo, that is, the southern land of the Holy Spirit. It is now known that this was not really a continent, but merely one of the New Hebrides islands, and more than a thousand miles away from the mainland. The land was filled by high mountains, verdure clad to their summits, and sending down fine streams, which fell in hoarse-sounding waterfalls from the edges of the rocky shore, or wandered amid tropical luxuriance of plants down to the golden sands that lay within the coral barriers. The inhabitants came down to the edge of the green and shining waters, making signs of peace, and twenty soldiers went ashore, along with an officer, who made friends with them, exchanging cloth for pigs and fruit. The Quiros coasted along the islands for a day or two till he entered a fine bay, where his vessels anchored, and Torres went ashore. A chief came down to meet him, offering him a present of fruit, and making signs to show that he did not wish the Spaniards to intrude upon his land. As Torres paid no attention, the chief drew a line upon the sand, and defied the Spaniards to cross it. Torres immediately stepped over it, and the natives launched some arrows at him, which dropped harmlessly from his iron armor. Then the Spaniards fired their muskets, killing the chief and a number of the naked savages. The rest stood for a moment, stupefied at the noise and flash, then turned and ran for the mountains. The Spaniards spent a few pleasant days among the fruit plantations and slept in cool groves of overarching foliage, but subsequently they had quarrels and combats with the natives, of whom they killed a considerable number. When the Spaniards had taken on board a sufficient supply of wood and of fresh water, they set sail, but had scarcely got out to sea when a fever spread among the crew and became a perfect plague. They returned and anchored in the bay, where the vessels lay like so many hospitals. No one died, and after a few days they again put to sea, this time to be driven back again by bad weather. Torres, with two ships, safely reached the sheltering bay, but the vessel in which the Quiros sailed was unable to enter it, and had to stand out to sea and weather the storm. The sailors then refused to proceed further with the voyage, and, having risen in mutiny, compelled the Quiros to turn the vessel's head for Mexico, which they reached after some terrible months of hunger and thirst. 3. Torres. The other ships waited for a day or two, but no signs being seen of their consort, they proceeded in search of it. In this voyage Torres sailed round the land, thus showing that it was no continent, but only an island. 
having satisfied himself that it was useless to seek for de quiros he turned to the west hoping to reach the philippine islands where the spaniards had a colony at manila it was his singular fortune to sail through that opening which lies between new guinea and australia to which the name of torres strait was long afterwards applied he probably saw cape york rising out of the sea to the south but thought it only another of those endless little islands with which the strait is studded poor de quiros spent the rest of his life in petitioning the king of spain for ships to make a fresh attempt after many years he obtained another order to the governor of peru and the old weather-beaten mariner once more set out from spain full of hope but at panama on his way death awaited him and there the fiery-souled veteran passed away the last of the great spanish navigators he died in poverty and disappointment but he is to be honoured as the first of the long line of australian discoverers in after years the name he had invented was divided into two parts the island he had really discovered being called espiritu santo while the continent he thought he had discovered was called terra australis this last name was shortened by another discoverer flinders to the present term australia four the dolphin the quiros and torres were spaniards but the dutch also displayed much anxiety to reach the great south continent from their colony at java they sent out a small vessel the dolphin or dove which sailed into the gulf of carpentaria and passed half-way down along its eastern side some sailors landed but so many of them were killed by the natives that the captain was glad to embark again and sail for home after calling the place of their disaster cape keavea or turnigan these dutch sailors were the first europeans as far as can now be known who landed on australian soil but as they never published any account of their voyage it is only by the merest chance that we know anything of it five other dutch discoverers during the next twenty years various dutch vessels while sailing to the settlements in the east indies met with the coast of australia in sixteen sixteen dirk hartoch landed on the island in shark bay which is now called after him two years later captain sachen is said to have sailed along the north coast which he called arnhem land next year sixteen nineteen another captain called edel surveyed the western shores which for a long time bore his name in sixteen twenty two a dutch ship the leowin or lioness sailed along the southern coast and its name was given to the southwest cape of australia in sixteen twenty seven peter knights entered the great australian bight and made a rough chart of some of its shores in sixteen twenty eight general carpenter sailed completely round the large gulf to the north which has taken its name from this circumstance thus by degrees all the northern and western together with part of the southern shores came to be roughly explored and the dutch even had some idea of colonizing this continent six tasman during the next fourteen years we hear no more of voyages to australia 
but in 1642 Antony van Diemen, the governor of the Dutch possessions in the East Indies, sent out his friend Abel Janssen Tasman with two ships to make new discoveries in the South Seas. Tasman first went to the island of Bourbon, from which he sailed due south for a time, but finding no signs of land he turned to the east, and three months after setting out he saw a rocky shore in the distance. Stormy weather coming on he was driven out to sea, and it was not till a week later that he was able to reach the coast again. He called the place Van Diemen's Land, and sent some sailors on shore to examine the country. These men heard strange noises in the woods, and saw trees of enormous height, in which notches were cut seven feet apart. These they believed to be the steps used by the natives in climbing the trees, and therefore returned to report that the land was exceedingly beautiful, but inhabited by men of gigantic size. Tasman, next day, allowed the carpenter to swim ashore and set up the Dutch flag, but, having himself seen, from his ship, what he thought to be men of extraordinary stature moving about on the shore, he lost no time in taking up his anchor and setting sail. Farther to the east he discovered the islands of New Zealand, and, after having made a partial survey of their coasts, he returned to Batavia. Two years after he was sent on a second voyage of discovery, and explored the northern and western shores of Australia itself, but the results do not seem to have been important, and are not now known. His chief service in the exploration of Australia was the discovery of Tasmania, as it is now called, after his name. This he did not know to be an island. He drew it on his maps as if it were a peninsula belonging to the mainland of Australia. 7. Dampier The discoveries that had so far been made were very imperfect, for the sailors generally contented themselves with looking at the land from a safe distance. They made no surveys such as would have enabled them to draw correct charts of the coasts, they seldom landed, and even when they did, they never sought to become acquainted with the natives, or to learn anything as to the nature of the interior of the country. The first who took the trouble to obtain information of this more accurate kind was the Englishman William Dampier. When a young man, Dampier had gone out to Jamaica to manage a large estate, but not liking the slave-driving business, he crossed over to Campeche and lived for a time in the woods, cutting the more valuable kinds of timber. Here he became acquainted with the buccaneers who made the lonely coves of Campeche their headquarters. Being persuaded to join them, he entered upon a life of lawless daring, constantly fighting and plundering, and meeting with the wildest adventures. He was often captured by the American natives, still more often by the Spaniards, but always escaped to enter upon exploits of fresh danger. In 1688 he joined a company of buccaneers who proposed to make a voyage round the world and plunder on their way. It took them more than a year to reach the East Indies, where they spent a long time, sometimes attacking Spanish ships or Dutch fortresses, sometimes leading an easy, luxurious life among the natives, often quarrelling among themselves, and even going so far as to leave their captain with forty men on the island of Mindanao. 
but at length the time came when it was necessary to seek some quiet spot where they should be able to clean and repair the bottoms of their ships accordingly they landed on the northwest coast of australia and lived for twelve days at the place now called buccaneers archipelago they were the first europeans who held any communication with the natives of australia and the first to publish a detailed account of their voyage thither growing tired of a lawless life and having become wealthy dampier bought an estate in england where he lived some years in retirement till his love of adventure led him forth again the king of england was anxious to encourage discovery and fitted out a vessel called the roebuck to explore the southern seas dampier was the only man in england who had ever been to australia and to him was given the command of the little vessel which sailed in the year sixteen ninety nine it took a long time to reach australia but at last the roebuck entered what dampier called shark bay from an enormous shark he caught there he then explored the northwest coast as far as roebuck bay in all about nine hundred miles of which he published a full and fairly accurate account he was a man of keen observation and delighted to describe the habits and manners of the natives as well as peculiarities in the plants and animals of the various places he visited during the time he was in australia he frequently met with the blacks and became well acquainted with them he gives this description of their appearance the inhabitants are the most miserable wretches in the universe having no houses or garments they feed upon a few fish cockles mussels and periwinkles they are without religion and without government in figure they are tall straight-bodied and thin with small long limbs the country itself he says is low and sandy with no fresh water and scarcely any animals except one which looks like a raccoon and jumps about on its long hind legs altogether his description is not prepossessing and he says that the only pleasure he had found in this part of his voyage was the satisfaction of having discovered the most barren spot on the face of the earth the account is in most respects correct so far as regards the portion of australia visited by dampier but unfortunately he saw only the most inhospitable part of the whole continent there are many parts whose beauty would have enchanted him but as he had sailed along nearly a thousand miles without seeing any shore that was not miserable it is not to be wondered at that he reported the whole land to be worthless he was subsequently engaged in other voyages of discovery in one of which he rescued the famous alexander selkirk from his lonely island but amid all his subsequent adventures he never entertained the idea of returning to australia dampier published a most interesting account of all his travels in different parts of the world and his book was for a long time the standard book of travels the foe used the materials it contained for his celebrated novel robinson crusoe but it turned away the tide of discovery from australia for those who read of the beautiful islands and rich countries dampier had elsewhere visited would never dream of incurring the labour and expense of a voyage to so dull and barren a spot as australia seemed to be from the description in his book 
Thus we hear of no further explorations in this part of the world until nearly a century after, and even then no one thought of sending out ships specially for the purpose. 8. Captain Cook But in the year 1770 a series of important discoveries were indirectly brought about. The Royal Society of London, calculating that the planet Venus would cross the disk of the sun in 1769, persuaded the English government to send out an expedition to the Pacific Ocean for the purpose of making observations which would enable astronomers to calculate the distance of the earth from the sun. A small vessel, the Endeavour, was chosen, astronomers with their instruments embarked and the whole placed under the charge of james cook a sailor whose admirable character fully merited this distinction at thirteen he had been a shopkeeper's assistant but preferring the sea he had become an apprentice in a coal vessel after many years of rude life in this trade during which he contrived to carry on his education in mathematics and navigation he entered the royal navy and by diligence and honesty rose to the rank of master. He had completed so many excellent surveys in North America, and, besides, had made himself so well acquainted with astronomy, that the government had no hesitation in making their choice. That it was a wise one, the care and success of Cook fully showed. He carried the expedition safely to Tahiti, built fortifications, and erected instruments for the observations, which were admirably made. Having finished this part of the task, he thought it would be a pity, with so fine a ship and crew, not to make some discoveries in these little-known seas. He sailed south for a time without meeting land. Then, turning west, he reached those islands of New Zealand which had been first seen by Tasman. But Cook made a far more complete exploration than had been possible to Tasman. For six months he examined their shores, sailing completely round both islands and making excellent maps of them. Then, saying good-bye to these coasts at what he named Cape Farewell, he sailed westward for three weeks, until his outlook man raised the cry of land, and they were close to the shores of Australia at Cape Howe. Standing to the northeast, he sailed along the coast till he reached a fine bay, where he anchored for about ten days. On his first landing he was opposed by two of the natives, who seemed quite ready to encounter more than forty armed men. Cook endeavoured to gain their good will, but without success. A musket fired between them startled, but did not dismay them, and when some small shot was fired into the legs of one of them, Though he turned and ran into his hut, it was only for the purpose of putting on a shield and again facing the white men. Cook made many subsequent attempts to be friendly with the natives, but always without success. He examined the country for a few miles inland, and two of his scientific friends, Sir Joseph Banks and Dr. Solander, made splendid collections of botanical specimens. From this circumstance the place was called Botany Bay, and its two headlands received the names of Cape Banks and Cape Solander. It was here that Captain Cook, amid the firing of cannons and volleys of musketry, took possession of the country on behalf of His Britannic Majesty, giving it the name New South Wales, 
on account of the resemblance of its coasts to the southern shores of Wales. Shortly after they had set sail from Botany Bay, they observed a small opening in the land, but Cook did not stay to examine it, merely marking it on his chart as Port Jackson, in honour of his friend Sir George Jackson. The vessel still continued her course northward along the coast till they anchored in Morton Bay. After a short stay, they again set out towards the north, making a rough chart of the shores they saw. In this way they had sailed along thirteen hundred miles without serious mishap, when one night, at about eleven o'clock, they found the sea grow very shallow. All hands were quickly on deck, but before the ship could be turned she struck heavily on a sunken rock. No land was to be seen, and they therefore concluded that it was upon a bank of coral they had struck. The vessel seemed to rest upon the ridge but, as the swell of the ocean rolled past, she bumped very heavily. Most of the cannons and other heavy articles were thrown overboard, and, the ship being thus lightened, they tried to float her off at daybreak. This they were unable to do, but, by working hard all next day, they prepared everything for a great effort at the evening tide, and had the satisfaction of seeing the rising waters float the vessel off. But now the sea was found to be pouring in through the leaks so rapidly that, even with four pumps constantly going, they could scarcely keep her afloat. They worked hard day and night, but the ship was slowly sinking, when, by the ingenious device of passing a sail beneath her and pulling it tightly, it was found that the leakage was sufficiently decreased to keep her from foundering. Shortly after, they saw land, which Captain Cook called Cape Tribulation. He took the vessel into the mouth of a small river, which they called the Endeavour, and there careened her. On examining the bottom, it was found that a great sharp rock had pierced a hole in her timbers, such as must inevitably have sent her to the bottom in spite of pumps and sails, had it not been that the piece of coral had broken off, and remained firmly fixed in the vessel's side, thus itself filling up the greater part of the hole it had caused. The ship was fully repaired, and, after a delay of two months, they proceeded northward along the coast to Cape York. They then sailed through Torres Strait, and made it clear that New Guinea and Australia are not joined. 9. Subsequent Visits Several ships visited Australia during the next few years, but their commanders contented themselves with merely viewing the coasts which had already been discovered, and returned without adding anything new. In 1772, Marion, a Frenchman, and next year Fourneau, an Englishman, sailed along the coasts of Van Diemen's Land. In 1777, Captain Cook, shortly before his death, anchored for a few days in Adventure Bay, on the east coast of Van Diemen's Land. La Perouse, Vancouver, and D'Entrecasteaux also visited Australia, and, though they added nothing of importance, they assisted in filling in the details. By this time nearly all the coasts had been roughly explored, and the only great point left unsettled was whether Van Diemen's Land was an island or not. End of section 1